to How I Write, a podcast sponsored by the California State University San Bernardino Writing Intensive Program. My name is George Romero, and I am your host and a master's student in the Department of English at Cal State San Bernardino. Today's guest is Professor Matthew Poole. Since 2015, Matthew has been a professor and the chair of the Department of Art at Cal State San Bernardino. He received his Master's of Fine Art from the University of Northumbria in the UK. At CSUSB, Professor Poole teaches a sequence of art history methodology courses and a course on the language of art. Matthew is a curator and writer whose work involves producing exhibitions, publishing artists' projects, and writing on topics related to the relations of production and distribution of art and teaching. Before moving to California in 2012, Professor Poole was a faculty member in the Department of Art History and Philosophy at the University of Essex in the UK, where he ran the postgraduate curatorial programs. Hello, Matthew, and welcome to How I Write. How are you? Hi, George. Thanks for having me. I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, I'm currently on sabbatical, so I'm doing really, really good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good. I'm glad you're able to enjoy your sabbatical. And thank you again for taking the time to speak with me and with our larger Cal State San Bernardino community about how writing figures into both your professional work as well as in your personal life. Happy to do it. Thank you for inviting me. In reading your description, you received your MFA and you originally are from the UK. And I was curious, what attracted you to live and work in Southern California? I came because my wife got a job here. She is the dean of the School of Critical Studies at California Institute of the Arts in Valencia. We decided 10 years ago now to have an adventure and come to California and see what it was all about. Then I was lucky enough, you know, I applied for several jobs before getting this one. And I'd always worked in public universities in the UK. And so it seemed like a good fit. That's how I ended up at CSUSB. Have you been happy in Southern California? Was it a long period of adjustment? Yes, is the answer to both questions. You know, my wife and I really like it here. California, of all the states in the United States, it's had initiatives in the past which are very attractive to, to both myself and my wife. It's a more liberal state. The CSU and the UC systems used to be free for students. There's a strong tradition of unions here. I am a member of the California Faculty Association, which is a fantastic organization. In terms of sort of lifestyle in California, one of the best things is really just being able to get out into wilderness and deserts or the mountains. Uh, and we love that. We lived in London for 20 years. It's really densely urban. After 20 years, you know, we'd had enough. It's very difficult to get out and about, to get away from the sort of dense urban environment. And it's noisy and it's exciting. It's a fantastic place. Don't get me wrong. But there's something about being able to just get out and unwind, go on top of a mountain, go into the desert that we really love here. In terms of adjustments uh, that you were asking about, sort of creating a sense of place is unusual here in Southern California when you're new, because in old European towns and cities, they have a definite center. They have a definite sense of place. Your experience of living in a town or a city is kind of centered around a central axis, which has then concentric circles around it of urban activity, suburban, and then exurban and rural. Whereas here, you have to sort of piece together 
your experience of the city over time. I think places like Los Angeles, the Inland Empire, they reveal themselves very slowly to you, or they did to me at least. Architectural writers like Rainer Bannum have very famously written about this kind of phenomena and, and others. And so it's a strange experience of time here because everything is to do with how fast you can move, how, how fast your car will move, how fast uh, public transport would move and so on. So yeah, it's been interesting. I was wondering how the move has affected your own writing style or process, specifically thinking about how the environment and your locale may impact or influence how you go about composing. On the one hand, I think moving to the US hasn't changed my approach or my methodology too much. But on the other hand, particularly living in Southern California, well, my experience of time is very different. So living in Southern California, you have to plan ahead all the time because driving and time driving is such a significant part of, of life. And even just going to the supermarket requires a certain amount of planning that you don't really have to do when you live in a big pedestrian city like London. And that meant that all aspects of life were just much more available. And so I think life was a bit more spontaneous I would work on my writing and reading much more erratically in the sense that actually when I did it, it was less planned out. It was a bit more spontaneous. Whereas here, I really have to plan things out. I have to sort of schedule. When am I going to read this book? That changes it's the sort of day-to-day habits. But I don't think it's changed the way I approach the actual task of reading and writing. Planning. I wanted to first talk a little bit about your own specific research. Then I noticed that one of your research areas is curatorial studies. You could share with us a sort of a general overview of that research area. In a, in a way, curatorial studies is a relatively new discipline. I would say, you know, 30 or 40 years old. And, and really, it's a kind of sub-discipline of museology, which is an older discipline in academia, which in itself is a kind of sub-discipline of art history. Art history is quite a young discipline. And in curatorial studies, you do think about museums and, and research museums and galleries. But in some ways, most curatorial studies is perhaps more abstract or more abstract than museology. And curatorial studies, it studies the activity of all of the mechanisms of reception of art. So not just museums and galleries, but also publishing, public art. Now, of course, the internet, social media, and so on. And curatorial studies really, in all its many different forms and subjects, it looks at what it means to intervene with art in any context whether it's a piece of public art, whether it's art activism, it's much more dispersed in a way. I focus specifically on the social and political ramifications of making art public. In some ways, it's a discourse analysis type of discipline, because you're always thinking about what is the intellectual and discursive context in which a curator is putting artworks together, but also together into a context. So there's a lot of contextual analysis goes on in that kind of work. So it's really thinking about what are the ramifications of art being published in the broadest sense. When I first came across 
curatorial studies in your CV, what immediately came to mind is the verb to curate. I was thinking more of putting exhibitions together, but in, in hearing you discuss it, it really is not only just exhibits, but it's really the intervention of art in any sort of, as you say, discourse. Exactly. We've already started talking about discourse. I wanted to narrow our conversation a bit more and talk specifically about how do you translate something as visual as art into a text composition? Yeah, it's a great question because it's a complex process. There are many different methods. And I think particularly in the work I do, I have to be quite fluid or open-minded about what set of methods I'm going to deploy for different writing projects. And I love the way that you've called text composition uh, in, in the question, because of course, artworks have composition as well. It's a very different kind of composition to the way that text is composed. Both visual arts and writing have a myriad of ways of being composed. And so the translation job, as you rightly say in the question, is quite a complicated one. I always start with, and I tell my students this, with the simplest method possible. Try to describe in writing what it is that is the object of my study, whether it's an artwork or whether it's an exhibition. I, I start with description. One of the methodologies I use derived from Erwin Panofsky's iconography and iconology. I use this methodology to describe, then analyze, and then situate the object of your study. I say to my students that I think description is possibly the most important part of any kind of visual analysis. There's something about having to write down what you see and just putting aside what you know so that you can really focus on what is this primary evidence that is there in front of you, this primary evidence of the object of your study, let's say an artwork, painting maybe. What can you reasonably describe in writing about it? And that requires very careful observation. It requires zooming in, zooming out, to look at details, to look at the overall composition, to look at the overall tone, to look at particular, let's call them compositional moments within if it's a painting, within areas of the painting. Description is really key to understanding what is grabbing your attention and what is starting to make you think in this artwork. I'd say that would be a brief description of, of what I do first. How do you begin to train students, for example, in your the language of arts course, to do that kind of work? What kind? If you could describe maybe some of the assignments or some of the readings that you have students engage with? Reading is super crucial in the arts. It can get undervalued. It is a kind of antipathy towards scholarly activity for artists and, and designers, being scholastic. And I don't mean being terribly formal. I just mean really getting into what it is that you think you're interested in. And, and what's happened, and I've been surprised by watching this over the last 30 years or so, the, the, this idea of personal expression, which is such a sort of mythical idea, has really come back with quite a forceful dominance in arts pedagogy. That seems to me reading and researching and sort of getting outside of this paradigm of, of self-expression for artists or for designers, or indeed for anybody who wants to know anything about art, is really crucial because 
Art has languages. Art design is composed of various languages, material languages, visual languages, symbolic languages, and is a form of communication. I think a lot of people, uh, particularly people who don't know too much about art yet, but who are really interested and enthusiastic, they've learned somehow, perhaps from popular culture or from, from school or, or wherever, that your intuition is enough. You can just sort of intuit what an artwork is about and what it's trying to communicate and what it, you know, quote unquote, means. So when people become artists, if they've been kind of inculcated into that sort of mythology, they then think, well, art is just about self-expression. And as long as I'm, quote unquote, expressing myself, then something good is going to come out. People think, well, yeah, I can just kind of understand art as long as I expose myself to it. And then, you know, I can do art because I'm just enthusiastic about it. And I think what people miss is the kind of beautiful complexity of understanding what it means to be part of a discourse, to insert yourself into a discourse, to kind of cross-pollinate different discourses, to really look at things from lots of different points of views, read different writers, look at different types of artworks. And in some ways, you know, always try to put myself, my opinions to the side when I'm writing. I try to remind myself, I don't know what I think until I start writing. And I can't write until I've done lots of research and until I've planned out carefully what I might write. And then once you start writing, you really get to see what you can do with the materials that you've gathered. What can you make as a writer? out of these materials that you've gathered, this knowledge, this research, these quotes, etc. And I think that's a good counter to this kind of ideology and, and mythology of, of self-expression. And I think it's a healthier way of going about things. You know, you have to go with facts. You have to go with the fact of other people's opinion, the facts that are there in the artwork, the facts of the social or political context, and so on. I have my students where, in the beginning of my classes, they can choose artworks. I, I show artworks from all over the world, but then students can choose their own examples, and then they get described them. A lot of the work at the beginning is just description. And then we move on to analysis and what it means to analyze something. And then we move on later to talk about situating or contextualization. I'm sure that before then, you have to attune students to what they should look for in a piece of art. Yes and no. It's a really good question, but I'm sorry to give you an ambiguous answer. Yes, the beginning of the class, ask questions to the students, which I guess you could call metacritical thinking, which is that I try not to lead the students to rules and conventions that I think are good. I don't want to tell students, this is how you should look at a piece of artwork. This is where to start. This is what specific criteria you should use to evaluate or judge a piece of artwork. But I do expose them to different writers who do have different criteria, often opposing criteria. In a way, that's metacritical because I'm not telling the students what to think, but I'm showing them other writers, showing them different kinds of artworks. And I ask a lot of questions. What's grabbing your attention here? What is important here in this image that we're looking at? I even ask them open-ended questions like, what is this? To try to prompt the students to focus on something, to have a starting point. 
And then from there, we can build out. There are specific things, like Erwin Panofsky, who I've mentioned, has a very complex system of symbolism, how to understand iconography. That's one example of rules, a bit like the idea of some symbols, some icons, they've gained a kind of solidity in people's shared understanding of what these things mean. But even someone like Panofsky is very clear in his writing, these quote-unquote meanings are contingent. He's basically saying, well, this is my best guess at what this means. And then he tells you what research he's done. But in the end, what he's actually saying is, well, it's all contingent. And I think that's very important to expose students to, because it's a key part of critical thinking or teaching critical thinking is teaching students or showing, demonstrating to students that they have agency in this discourse. They can be a part of this discourse as well as anybody else. And that's really important to me. You know, it's an important political thing about teaching. The bottom line of it, it's important that people who study feel that they are part of those structures and rules and that they don't have to follow them blindly. They can intervene, they can change the, the calibration, if you like. You mentioned you find that students are more concerned with their self-expression. You mentioned specifically reading, but I was curious if you find studio art students hesitant to engage with traditional text-based composing practices. And if so, what strategies have you used to overcome this obstacle? Not exactly a fear, but an apprehension about reading. And I think the same is true of writing. Approaching writing in small chunks and allowing certain things to develop and then trying to develop an overview and then going back and then dealing with the small chunks to where you think you want to go, rather than having a grand plan of a, a difficult and complex journey of, a you know, let's say a 6,000 word essay or something like that. Instead of worrying about the vastness of what that might look like, just take small steps towards where you want to go in terms of writing. And what you want to say will come out as those steps start to work in unison. It's just about making reading and writing a manageable activity. That's not just for students. I think for people who've been at it a long time, like me, I still have to do the same. If I pick up a book that's 500 pages, I try to talk myself down from the panic of looking at this gigantic doorstop of a, of a thing and say, well, just read the first page and just go page by page. Say to myself, just keep going. Don't panic. It's a bit like a feeling of vertigo when you're trying to deal with a huge book. It just seems too big. I say to my students, writing is difficult for everybody, even Pulitzer Prize winning or this. It is just difficult, but there's fantastic rewards from doing it. The sense of accomplishment is wonderful. You know, even writing something small and short can give you a real sense of accomplishment. You know, it's frightening and daunting for everyone. And I think the more that people talk about the fact that writing is difficult, it's okay to feel that it's difficult, the better for everyone. The key is to have people around you who can support you. Just be going, yeah, come on, this is a great idea. Don't worry. Don't worry about 10,000 words. Just Let's just articulate this great idea. Let's see where this is going to go. And I was wondering if you could speak to whether you've had to adjust your approach to teaching writing to Americans versus British students? I would say not really. I think the cultures of America and the UK are largely the same. I think people's ambitions and aspirations, their hopes and dreams and fears and so on, are largely the same. That means that students generally 
approach their studies in a similar sort of way. And I think the main difference is the structure of degrees. Because US students have to do the GE package, which you don't do in the UK. In, in the UK, you just get on with the subject that you're interested in. So if it's English literature, you're just doing English literature. If it's mathematics, it's physics, politics, whatever. That is all you're doing. You're not having to do the GE. And in the US, I think it teaches students to be very good at synthesizing disparate things that they're learning. So, But I think what that means is that US students, they have to think about all sorts of different subjects all at once, because you might be doing biology, you might be doing geology, French, gender studies in one semester. Whereas in the UK, you're just doing your subject. There are pros and cons to both. I don't know which is better. In the, these last final moments, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to add any additional insights that you want to share with our audience about writing. I think writing is fantastic for self-esteem because it's a journey. It's like climbing a mountain or going hiking. Sometimes you're looking out at the view. Sometimes you're looking down at the details. The weather changes as you go through a writing project, metaphorically speaking. And whilst for me, at least... I don't think that my object of study for that journey is myself. I know for sure that it is a journey of self-discovery in the sense that you can find your place in the world, you can find what you find interesting, you can test what you already think you find interesting through writing. Writing is a brilliant way of touching the world in a way on the one hand, seems detached and removed. So there's a kind of safety and a comfort in that. But then on the other hand, it's a very, very direct and powerful tool for navigating the world. It's just brilliant. And I think one of the reasons that that is the case is that writing forces you almost to slow your thinking down and to think about one thing at a time. And there's not much in everyday life, particularly now with smartphones and different types of screens all the time. We very rarely think about one thing at a time. And I think, for me at least, that is what's amazing about writing. It allows you to really think about one thing at a time and build something methodically, like rigorously, piece by piece, which is a way of intervening in the world that genuinely seems to be meaningful. There's a kind of satisfaction that doesn't come from anything else like that. Thank you for those final comments about writing and its place in not only our professional lives, but also in our personal life. Oh yeah, my pleasure, George. Thanks. How I Write is a production of California State University San Bernardino's Writing Intensive Program. Produced by George Romero with music from Quinzas Morea and Emmett Fenn. Thanks for listening.